We are back. We sometimes do obituaries on this program. Well, we fairly often do obituaries on this program. And today I would like to note the passing of, uh, I guess you'd say, my favorite cosmonaut, Alexei Leonov. Passed away this past week at the age of 85. Leonov scored a huge first in the space race when he was the first man to supposedly walk in space. I think that, you know, the Soviet uh, propagandists and, and the people at NASA, I think, were both working overtime and talking about how we needed to go walk in space. What walking in space meant was that you popped open the capsule with your spacesuit on and then exited to float alongside it, tethered to it with, you know, suitable machinery to keep you breathing. Back on March 18th of 1965, the Soviets triumph, triumphantly announced that uh, Leonov had walked in space. They showed the pictures, the photographs that were taken of him out on the tether alongside the spacecraft. It does amuse me to note, looking back at it, and I'd I'd forgotten about this up until this very moment, was that after those photographs came out, there were those who were theorizing that the thing was faked. I remember my neighbor, Andy Graber, had gotten wind of this theory that the whole thing was phony, it was fake, and then there's no way the Russians did that. And, and I remember being amused by it, thinking like, well, why, why would they do that? Well, I guess for the propaganda value, but, you know, the, faking such a thing was probably tougher than actually doing it. Leonov would emerge again in the 1970s when the, the, the U.S. and the USSR were cooperating on space missions. And those of you old enough to remember will... Surely recall that moment in the Soyuz Apollo test project when uh, Tom Stafford went through the airlock and met up Alexei Leonov coming the other way. The economist noted that Leonov and his new friends, whom he kept for life, drank to each other's health in borscht, which he led them to believe was vodka. Leonov always seemed to have a smile on his face and be very friendly, and I I think that the American newsmen uh, got on with him very well. Which is why I'm designating him as my favorite cosmonaut. By the way, I do wish they could agree on the terminology on this. The Americans call them astronauts, the Russians call them cosmonauts, and the Chinese call them taikonauts. If India ever manages to get a man in space, well, we're not sure what they're going to call him. Ms. McMillan suggests they may go with Shivanaut. We'll have to see. Anyway, because I enjoy talking about this guy, I'm going to read from the obituary that appeared in The Economist. Note to the magazine. Climbing from the open airlock of Voshkod 2, Alexei Leonov felt quite calm. He was cool-headed, focused. This often disappointed people. What, they would exclaim, the door into the universe had just been open and you felt nothing? They forgot that he'd been through all that in training at the Star City Cosmonaut School, jumping into deep water, acrobatics, and the rest. They forgot that his head was full of data and instructions. All the same, as he released one hand, then one foot, then the whole of him, until only a 5.5-meter rope held him to the world of men, he could feel a smile starting on his face and spreading. He was calm, mostly because he was enthralled. He spread his bulky-suited arms, kicked his legs, and floated free. In the silence, he could hear only his heartbeat and his heavy breathing. Stars were all around him against a coal-black sky. They did not blink. Below him, 500 kilometers below, lay the Black Sea. He knew it well, not only as a Russian patriot, because, but because he had visited its shores dozens of times. Now he saw it whole, 
gunmetal gray with a tiny dot of a ship on it that seemed caught from all sides in a flow of light. He too was a dot, a grain of sand in the near-blinding dazzle of the unobscured sun. It came through his visor like a welder's torch. But note of the magazine, his reverie ended in near disaster. In the vacuum of space, his spacesuit expanded until he could not get back into the craft without bleeding it of oxygen, which led them to worry about, you know, a decompression sickness. Moreover, in minutes, the craft's orbit would take it into total darkness again. Training kicked in. He kept his nerve and at last, drenched in sweat, tumbled headfirst back through the airlock. Then the craft's reentry went wrong. The guidance system failed and they had to steer manually, bumping down in a snowy forest 1,600 kilometers from the landing site. They waited two nights to be rescued, wondering whether bears or wolves would get to them first. Yet, the elation did not leave him. Partly this was because the mishaps were officially hushed up, leaving only his triumph. And, noted the magazine, there were other reasons. First, he had survived. Astonishingly, he always did when danger felt his collar. His car flipped over on a frozen lake, and he didn't drown. And this is the part that really amazes me about the obituary, something I had no knowledge of. In 1969... Alexei Leonov got caught in a hail of bullets when he was riding in a motorcade behind Leonid Brezhnev, then-Soviet leader. Four bullets passed through his coat, but none through him. Now, dear listener, if you know anything about the attempted assassination in 1969 of Leonid Brezhnev, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. I am wholly ignorant of this subject and would like to know more. In 1971, Leonov got bumped from the Soyuz 11 flight to the Salyut space station. He was furious. But that craft opened prematurely on re-entry, and the three-men crew died. His spacewalk was just another brush with annihilation from which he emerged just about in one piece. Anyway, Alexei Leonov, cosmonaut, quite a guy. We're sorry he's gone. Oh, and in other news concerning... The cosmos. We would like to point out to you that next month, November 2019, we will see something that takes place about 13 times every century, which is that the planet Mercury will pass directly in front of the sun as seen from planet Earth. I gather that uh, some of this transit uh, will take place in California anyway, a little bit before sunrise, but if you're in Florida or on the East Coast, you will see the transit in its entirety. It will not block out much of the sun, given that Mercury's diameter is like 4,000 miles and the sun's is like 860,000 miles. But if you set up a good telescope and project the image onto a screen, which is the best way to look at a transit, you'll see the dot. And we certainly hope that uh, some of you do next month. And the current issue of The Economist provides us with a couple of oddball science issues I think are worthy of passing mention. The first concerns... Trilobites. Trilobites, alas, are all extinct. But these little armored sea creatures lasted for 270 million years, and they dominated the seafloor for the first 150 million years of that span. They all disappeared in a flash about 450 million years ago at the Permian extinction. Anyway, back in their heyday, they were quite the kings of, of the ocean floor, and they developed all sorts of exotic shapes. One of them had long spines extending away from its body, and people 
uh, puzzled over what the function of these may have been, and apparently they've now discovered a fossil that appears to, it appears to answer the question. They discovered fossils that showed trilobites all marching in unison, orienting themselves to one another with, in this case, those long spines. Scientists note that uh, in the present era, spiny lobsters uh, have similar long appendages and also form columns uh, as they march across the seafloor. Well, there's just another example of history repeating itself. And when yours truly chanced to visit the nation of Brazil many years ago, I noticed that they sold fish scales as emery boards, basically. The fish scales come from a, a large... Uh, the fish scales in this case came from a large aquatic species known as the pirarusu. Why do the pirarusu have such big honking scales, you ask? Or at least someone asked. And reportedly... In the journal Matter, an article by Robert Ritchie and Mark Myers of the University of California at Berkeley and San Diego, respectively, well, the answer appears to be that these fish share the same water with piranha. Piranhas, are, piranhas of course, are famous for attacking and eating larger creatures. Evidently, the pirarusu escapes being devoured by the armored, plated scales it puts in the path of the hungry piranhas. This conclusion uh, apparently was derived by bringing some of these scales back to Berkeley and San Diego and examining them carefully, and they discovered that these things were really tough. They measured the toughness by squeezing them between metal plates and discovered that these scales only gave way when the forces exceeded 500 newtons. I think that's 10 to 1 versus pounds. Does that make it like 500 pounds of force? I think that's right. If not, drop us a line, correct us. But anyway, it's a lot of force, and it's apparently more than enough to resist the bite of a piranha. On further examination, the scientists concluded that pirarusu scales are among the toughest natural materials in the world. And the secret, in case you're wondering how these scales are so tough, is apparently they've got layers of collagen that are mineralized, so that if the piranha bites and the minerals crack, the collagen prevents the crack from spreading as it would, say, in a piece of glass. Apparently, the key to the success in this case was the fact that the collagen is arranged in a rather random fashion, which prevents the cracks from propagating. You might have some collagen on you right now, dear listener, if you're wearing a belt or have leather shoes on or anything else made of leather. Collagen is, I believe, the major component of animal skins. And, of course, if you boil those down, you can then make gelatin from which we derive gummy bears and other candies made of collagen. We mentioned on last week's program that we probably should read to you a piece that was in, again, The Economist, which is dominating today's program, titled The Backstory. The backstory in this case was what has transpired in Ukraine over the past couple decades to kind of put to the current goings-on between the American president and the Ukrainian president in better perspective. That'd be a worthwhile effort, but I don't have the heart to do it today. I do want to note that the president is evidently experiencing quite a bit of, well, I guess you'd say apprehension from his Republican allies over some of his most recent antics. They are saying, well, yeah, some of this stuff does look pretty bad. I mean, it's pretty clear in the United States Constitution that a president cannot accept favors either from domestic sources or even more particularly from foreign ones. 
if a foreign government does you a political favor or rewards you financially, that is a violation of the Emoluments Clause, a a clause which Trump evidently referred to recently as fake. I I don't recall his exact wording on it, but it 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 was referring to this fake emolument clause supposedly in the Constitution, which people have tried to point out to him, well, actually is a real deal. Even some of uh, the president's supporters are having to acknowledge that, well, if he did accept, you know, a favor from the Ukrainians, and particularly if he withheld $400 million in aid, which they'd been promised, in order to extract a favor from the Ukrainians, well, that just looks bad. Now, the fact of the matter is that legally and constitutionally, it it is banned behavior. You know, the Constitution bans this sort of behavior, period. The president seems to think that if there was no quid pro quo in the deal, that he's off the hook. He isn't. But if there was a quid pro quo, it just looks so much worse. So naturally, Trump has been denying that that's what took place. He's been denying that over and over again. Unfortunately, his acting chief of staff stirred up a tempest last week when he, in fact, acknowledged that the administration had held up aid to Ukraine, in part to prod that country into investigating Democrats and the 2016 election and their crazy theory about what the Ukrainians were trying to do to hurt Trump. This evidently has gotten the chief of staff into hot water with his boss, so he continues to explain to the news media why what he said isn't exactly what he meant. Mulvaney also tried mightily to put a positive spin on uh, Trump's selection of, what do you know, his own resort in Florida to host next year's G7 World Summit. Mulvaney said at one point, no, this this is a great place. This is where we should hold this summit. I mean, couldn't think of a better place. And in fact, the president would do it at cost. In a subsequent press conference, the president mentioned how he was prepared to do it for free. And of course, for free isn't the same thing as at cost. Since all that went down, the president apparently has abandoned his decision to host the next year's G7 seven summit at his private golf club after it became clear that the move had alienated republicans and swiftly become part of the impeachment inquiry that threatens his presidency noted the post in a round of phone calls with conservative allies this past weekend trump was told republicans are struggling to defend him on so many fronts according to an administration official who spoke on the condition of anonymity i wonder if that's the same anonymous person who's writing this book coming out next month Anyway, there sure seems to be trouble in paradise. I'm also a little bit puzzled by the fact that apparently Mitch McConnell and others have been enraged by Trump's reversal on Syria, his pulling out of troops near the border with Turkey, apparently at the behest of Turkish President Erdogan, because the Turks have never liked the idea of Kurdish forces being so close to their border. Kurds in eastern Turkey, of course, have been trying to carve out a a homeland out of that country for themselves for quite a while. The northern part of Iraq is Kurdish-dominated. But it's curious to note that although we pretty much control the things that are going on in Iraq, such as they can be controlled, uh, the United States has not seen fit to carve the country up and give the the Kurds their own Kurdistan. I've heard it said that the Kurdish people are the world's largest ethnic group that has no home country to call their own. I don't know if that's true, but it seems possible. I got to say that I've always thought that our attempt to uh, affect a regime change in Syria seemed rather ill-advised. 
Remember back in 2004 when Wesley Clark uh, was trying to run for president and he mentioned that uh, he himself had seen plans in the Pentagon for all these regimes that the U.S. intended to overthrow one by one with Iraq heading the list. Not far down the list were Libya and Syria. Well, Muammar Gaddafi has uh, long exited the scene in Libya, but the Assad family, in this case, eye surgeon Bashir Assad is still in control in Damascus. The fact that the Russians have supported him uh, seems to play very poorly here in America, but the Russians rather intelligently asked the question when there was all this turmoil in Syria of, well, who would you prefer to have running the country? An authoritarian regime or Islamic fundamentalists? jihadists. I I thought that was a legitimate question then. I I think it's a legitimate question now. It is very, very much downplayed in the press and the reporting these days, looking back at what has transpired in Syria, that the U.S. was arming groups opposed to Assad in a similar fashion to what we did in Afghanistan back in the 1970s when we were attempting to give the Soviets their own Vietnam, which we succeeded very well at. In Afghanistan, we armed jihadists from Saudi Arabia. There were plenty of Arabs that uh, traveled east to fight in Afghanistan. And the CIA helped train a lot of them. After 9-11, they managed to kind of downplay people in the Central Intelligence Agency, like Milton Bearden, who did admit when he was asked that, yeah, they they trained a, a, a certain guy named Osama bin Laden to go fight the jihad in Afghanistan. Suffice it to say that, uh, that arming uh, Islamic fundamentalist jihadists hasn't worked out so well. And it seems pretty clear to me when the U.S. was searching feverishly to find groups opposed to Assad in Syria that among the people we were supporting were groups that turned out to be, well, if not ISIS, ISIS-affiliated. I believe actually... It was ISIS. It's a complicated group of participants over there, and it's hard to keep the players straight without a scorecard. But I got to tell you, uh, a lot of people were saying back in the Obama administration that we should not try to affect regime change in Syria, yet we went ahead and made a stab at it. I'm certainly not going to try and defend uh, the Assad regime, which is, which, is, which is noted for its heavy-handedness and uh, occasional brutality. In 1998, I I passed through Syria. I'm glad I did it back then. Uh, I was by myself. I don't speak Arabic. I had a backpack on my back. Uh, The Syrians were very nice. I took public transportation across the border from Antakya, Turkey, out uh, to Palmyra in the desert. Marvelous archaeologic site. It was an interesting experience. Taking the bus across the desert, there seemed to be tanks everywhere out across the desert sands. I I think they were dummies. (laughs) I noticed they weren't moving. <laughs> I wasn't sure what was going on. And just because I spent four nights in the country, I admit I'm certainly no expert. But nevertheless, I was able to, as a single American, manage 20 years ago to pay a visit to the country and, and come out of it just fine. Thank you very much. When I saw that ISIS had managed to make its way out in the desert and capture the city of Palmyra... I was pretty dismayed. I was pretty dismayed to see them take dynamite charges out there and blow up things they considered to be non-Islamic, in this case, 
remains of Roman-era structures. On the way out to visit Palmyra, I passed through the city of Homs, which uh, Hafez Assad, Bashir's dad, had pretty much leveled with the Syrian army years before when the Islamic Brotherhood had had an uprising against his rule. Again, I'm not an expert on Syrian affairs, but uh, I have seen photos of what some of the cities look like after the air bombardments have been completed. It is a disgrace. The number of people killed, the number of millions of people who have been displaced and sent across Europe to try and find refuge uh, and safety from the turmoil is, is just, it's a tragedy of epic proportions. And you have to balance that against, you know, the so-called brutal regime. Where, where is the greater brutality in all of this? Anyway, it's very odd that, that Iran and Russia were in Syria, supposedly at that point fighting the jihadists alongside America. To be sure, the whole thing is one big old mess. But from my mind, I take a look at you know this regime in Syria. It's been in power for quite some time. Yeah, there's some bad actors there. But let's compare this with our valiant ally, the Saudi Arabians, shall we? Remember that uprising that took place in the holy cities in, Med- in Mecca when uh, jihadists basically took over the holy sites and demanded reform from the Saudi ruling family? Well, the Saudi ruling forces managed to retake the holy sites, capture the rebels, and execute them. But knowing there was a great deal of support for the points they were making about corruption in Saudi Arabia and how the royal family seemed to control just about everything, they cut a deal with them stating that if they would export their jihad to other countries, they would receive support in doing so. The key was they had to restrict their activities from the kingdom itself. As far as I know, that deal's still in place. That deal, by the way, led to such things as the 9-11 attacks on America. Do recall that 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. Do recall that it appears that uh, the planning and execution of these terrorist acts here on American soil, well, it it appears it was Saudi-organized and Saudi-financed. Yes, Osama bin Laden was the poster boy for the attacks, but it was actually Khalid Sheikh Mohammed that planned it and other Saudi royals that provided a lot of other background support. Anyway, there's a lot of hollering going on about uh, our abandoning the Kurds in in Syria, and I suppose there's some truth to that aspect of it. But I'd be doing a great disservice to continue to provide the somewhat simplified analysis that I'm mouthing off about right now. I really should go back and take a look at that uh, geopolitical alignment of Ukraine versus Russia versus America, and then see if we can ladle Turkey into that. But uh, we've only got about five minutes left on today's program, and I'm certainly not going to be able to pull that off today. I hope I can pull it off eventually. Anyway, in the five minutes or so we have left on what is turning out to be a completely political program today, or almost so, we, I think we should go out talking about China. I hope, dear listener, that you caught the excellent episode of This American Life last weekend that concerned itself with the rebellion going on in, in Hong Kong. The central government of the People's Republic of China is, um, well, let's just say not playing fair with Hong Kong citizens who were promised that until there was a complete takeover by China, decades in the future, they would be free to manage their own affairs. It hasn't worked out that way, and a lot of young Chinese are raising hell about it, appropriately. 
China's tech companies, of course, are taking uh, these things like facial recognition and the ability to survey its own citizens to, to heights, which I hope we never get near here at home. We've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again. But I was struck by this little piece in the New York Times about how, boy, things are sure changing in how we deal with China. To quote from the piece from Amy Quinn and Julie Cresswell, For international companies looking to do business in China, the rules were once simple. Don't talk about the three T's, Tibet, Taiwan, and the Tiananmen Square crackdown. These days, however, what do you know? Somebody at the National Basketball Association makes a favorable comment about the rebellion going on in Hong Kong. The Chinese object, and everybody backs off and takes the position that it's important we not anger them. Noted the article, multinational companies are increasingly struggling with one question, how to be apolitical in an increasingly politicized and punitive China. James McGregor, chairman of the Greater China Region for the consulting firm APCO Worldwide, said, you used to know what would get everyone fired up, and now you don't know. You just wake up and discover something new. Gee, you'd sure hate to see China and the U.S. not collaborating on some of these tech issues, wouldn't you like what was revealed in Bloomberg News last week. Oh, the fact that Apple came under fire for sending web browsing data, including IP addresses to China's Tencent Holdings LTD. Apparently, Apple gave uh, some browsing information to the Chinese, who are keen to know what people in China are taking a look at. They have evidently also potentially provided Tencent, the Chinese internet conglomerate with government ties, data such as a user's location. What could possibly go wrong with this? Anyway, I think that just about does it for today's program. We'll try and keep things a little bit lighter next week. I just want to note in closing the point I made at the top of the show, which was that problems created by something being misused and overused are not likely to be solved by continuing to use that something the way you have been. Misuse of vitamins can kill you. Misuse of technology might do likewise. Anyway, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm pretty darn sure at this point I've spoiled my chances to get invited to the Mark Zuckerberg birthday bash at Facebook headquarters. But oh well, we'll see you next week.